welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Nick Walker. And we're so glad you can join us. At last week's European Council Summit, last week on December 14th and 15th, EU heads of state and government agreed to begin accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova, as well as to grant candidate status to Georgia. These historic decisions demonstrate the new momentum in the European Union's enlargement process following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has forced the bloc to think more strategically about integrating its neighbors to the east. But while enlargement may be back on the political agenda, there are many obstacles in its way, including and especially the ongoing war in Ukraine, as well as the need for substantial political reforms in candidate countries and the need for the European Union to reform its own institutions in order to be able to welcome new members. As we look ahead to what is sure to be a long and difficult process, what are the true prospects for enlargement success and what will need to happen before a new set of member states can join the European Union? To discuss all of this and more, we're very pleased to have Veronica Angel and Angelusha Marina with us on the podcast. Welcome to you both. Hi, Andrea. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting, Andrea. Wonderful. So for our listeners, Veronica is a lecturer at SAIS Europe and a visiting fellow in the Robert Schumann Center at the European University Institute. And Angelusha is a senior policy fellow with the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Okay, Veronica, let's start with you. And I think turning to you to help us contextualize this major announcement. Um, how significant is it? How, as someone who's followed this process uh, uh, for, for many years, um, how significant is this and what do our listeners need to understand about it? Well, Andrea, the emphasis that you put on the, on the word uh, significant is really very, uh, very relevant because the European Union has uh, always considered uh, how exactly to go forward with the European enlargement. Um, and it hasn't really paid that much attention to this, uh, to this policy in the last years. Um, so the um, invasion of, of Ukraine has really, really re-energized um, this conversation, but it has also brought a lot of new challenges to what it means to be a European Union member state. So what's happened right now um, is that amid a lot of fragmented opinions um, in the European Union at the level of the population, the heads of governments have managed um, to secure unanimity to open uh, accession negotiations uh, with Ukraine and the neighboring Republic of Moldova. Um, and this is not a, a small thing because we were you know, holding our breaths to, to the last minute whether the Prime Minister of Hungary was going to, um, uh, to uh, veto this procedure. So uh, the fact that uh, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, um, managed to convince Viktor Orban to leave the room during the European Council vote on Ukraine's start for EU accession talks uh, secured the needed unanimity in exchange for the potential release of more funds um, that European Union is holding um, um, over rule of law challenges in Hungary. Uh, but th this is a very long process, just like you said, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and this arrangement in which Orban or other, um, let's say, uh, Ukraine neutral or uh, Russia friendly governments uh, abstain on Ukraine accession uh, will not hold through the tens of occasions 
um, in which unanimity will be required in this very long process. So we are likely to see um, a truly a, a lot of drama unfolding around this decision. And um, unfortunately, this means um, many questions related to uh, Ukraine's ability um, uh, to go forward in its in its war with with uh, uh, with with Russia. The other issue that I want to raise is that this is also important um, because um, it, it's connected somehow to a new mechanism that the European Union is, is getting together, which is the uh, Ukraine facility. Uh, this is separate from the conversation on enlargement, uh, but it's very relevant. So the arrangement seems to have been that um, uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Orban accepts to open uh, enlargement negotiations, but will veto um, this uh, 50 billion euro uh, Ukraine facility. Um, and, and so this conversation will just keep going in a very European style uh, in many ways. Um, that just means kicking the can down the road again and again um, until uh, more decisions are being taken. Angelusha, anything you want to add to that? I fully concur uh, with Veronica. This was, uh, and you, Andrea, this was a significant meeting. Um, and uh, it was for many observers, uh, for many of us who were following, it was a little bit of an emotional roller coaster because we all thought that, you know, this Orban person is going to block. And then, you know, this is going to be so devastating for, for Ukrainians. But somehow EU26 managed to pull, pull this together at least half of, of the decisions, which is uh, opening uh, accession talks with Ukraine and Moldova and also Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, so so really good, these, these half decisions kind of really important that went through. But I think just like Veronica, I think it's very important that the 50 billion facility uh, also, there is a decision on that soon. Um, I hear from Ukrainian colleagues that maybe another couple of weeks there will be somehow, you know, patching up in Ukraine with regards to different funds coming in. But then it's going to get quite serious because this money is is desperately needed for for many areas, not only economical, but but also lots of other areas in the daily life of Ukrainians. And not to talk about, you know, the the sold um, in a way sold kind of situation in the battlefield that, that it's, you know, that it's becoming quite crucial right now. So all these things need to be, the, the whole context need to be um, kind of borne in mind that just taking this decision on opening accession negotiations, it's very good, but it's not enough. Yeah, those are really important points. And I want to definitely dive into the challenges and kind of the geopolitical momentum and how, how, how this will transpire. But before we do that, um, I mean, what does this tell you about the enlargement process more broadly? So what about Georgia? How was this reaction received in the Western Balkans? So obviously this was really wonderful and much um, needed news for Ukraine in particular, but also Moldova. But how is this decision being um, received in throughout Europe, but particularly in those countries that um, didn't get the same um, news maybe that they had hoped for, and particularly Georgia and the Western Balkans. Um, uh, yeah, I can, um, yes. Uh, so very important topic, this this topic of enlargement, uh, because 
you know, if we go back a little bit and revisit the the root the root causes of I mean, the, the very root of the idea is um, enlargement or European Union is a peace process. And it has um, a very transformative effect on the countries that join through their preparation during the accession negotiations until they become a full member. Very many cases can be taken as a very good example. It's like, you know, for example, Romania and Poland and um, Slovakia, to an extent, they, they developed so much in the meantime, and now they're countries with with, uh, you know, by and large, with political and economic stability. And so as a process in itself, it's really important. But for, for Europe, uh, and then we can talk about this when we talk Europe, What do, which parts of Europe we talk about. But I think for Europe to consolidate its space, to, to secure and consolidate its space, right now in the current geopolitical context, enlarging further further into the East and into the Western Balkans is very important. It's very important for Europe, uh, first and foremost, but also for the countries in, in Eastern neighborhood and in the Western Balkans. Um, so it's good in many ways that we are talking about it, but I think it, it's a little bit disheartening that to see that we talk, we started re-energizing the debate again because of the war, you know, in the neighborhood. You know, the enlargement fatigue um, that started taking root after um, Jean-Claude Juncker's um, statement on, uh, I think it was 2014 when he said something along the lines of under my watch, there will be no enlargement because we need reform first or something along these lines. Um, then this took root and it became quite lethargic. But with the war in Ukraine, this lethargy seems to have faded away, but I don't think altogether it's gone. In, in the Western Balkans, and we can elaborate more on this, it's still there. There is lethargy about the whether Europe really means it. So then to, to answer partially your question, in the Western Balkans, in some circles, uh, they see this as, you know, we were always told this is a merit-based process, but look at look at the kind of the behavior of the EU member states now. Um, they um, take the process so so speedily forward with Ukraine and Moldova, but then fail to do anything substantial with Western Balkans. Well, Bosnia and Herzegovina did uh, receive the opening of, of negotiations, but you know there are so many um, issues with this with this decision uh, that it doesn't seem to be really. It, and I agree, it's not enough for the Western Balkans, the countries that have been waiting in line. So then, you know, we I think we should really the expert community and the policymakers we need to have this discussion that you touched upon already, Andrea and Veronica as well. What what are what are we talking about? It's so complex. There, institutional reform is needed. Um, the process needs to be reinvigorated fully. Is it enough just to have these uh, decisions taken in the way that they were taken in in December in uh, last week in Brussels? I know Nick's going to jump in, but really directly, Veronica, do you think that we're that the Europe that Europe risks alienating? The Western Balkans, like, is there frustration over the decision? I mean, I think Angelusha, that's what you're getting at. Is whereas, like, Ukraine kind of parachuted in, mm -hmm. um, and it has accelerated the process. And what do you think the repercussions will be, including and for Georgia? I mean, I don't. Maybe you can say a little something about how far Georgia has come through the process. And I know the Georgian dream is a little bit um, more pro-Russian leaning, and that creates all sorts of complication with the population that does see its future in Europe. But what does it mean for these countries that have kind of been in a way bypassed? 
I have uh, a few points here just to add to what uh, Angelisha said. Um, so yes, this is an issue for the Western Balkans because it will be, it will be, and it is weaponized by the populist nationalists and the people who are anti-European, um, like um, like in Serbia, right? Which is just won the elections, and um, and that is also based on the uh, on the message that see the European Union doesn't really want us there. Um, that is that is a message that can be transferred to a population in both positive terms and in negative terms. Because I see the decision that the European Union has taken to potentially enlarge as a see if they want it, they can do it. There are no hurdles uh, that are against this product um, that uh, that is new, right? So the European Union can evolve towards whatever it wants to be um, as it builds itself in the world. Uh, so you can see this as a positive thing, um, or you can sell it as a completely negative thing. You know, this, they never did this for us, um, and they're doing this in, in Serbia for self-gain so that they can always get maybe more funding or attention from the European Union, tell the population um, that they're trying their best. Um, uh, but see, they, they we're just uh, second order candidates and, and we remain so. And that is the same thing that is likely to happen um, in, in Georgia as well going forward, uh, because this is really an, an, an very, um, yeah, weaponized. This, this is an issue that can be weaponized by malign actors. Um, but I do want to say another thing uh, related to the Western Balkans that we've also seen that their Western Balkan countries have friends in the European Union as well, who are um, really taking uh, um, care of their interests. Um, and one of them is Austria. So for example, Austria is an important member um, of the European Union who has connected its own um, relationship to uh, Ukraine's obsession um, to how the Western Balkan countries um, are being integrated uh, in this conversation as well. And Romania is a uh, is a friend of, of Moldova um, who has uh, also pushed uh, to connect um, uh, Moldova to Ukraine's accession um, in the future. I'm not sure who Georgia's friend is uh, in that way directly in the European Union, um, but this is a question that I am going to answer to myself uh, soon. Because <laughs> that's important to know. Thank you both for your uh, really excellent contributions so far. I want to talk a little bit more about the, the challenges ahead in the enlargement process. You know, I agree this is a really great decision that has been taken, but at the same time, um, you know, it seems like there are maybe some some obstacles that are not really being addressed head on yet uh, in Europe. And for me, one of I think one of the the biggest obstacles that it's sort of you know, it's it's not exactly being addressed in the enlargement discussions, at least to the extent that I'm following them, is the ongoing, uh, you know, the ongoing stalemate in Ukraine and really how that impacts the future of Ukraine's ability to become an EU member. Um, you know, there have been there have been timelines tossed around by uh, European Council President Jean Michel uh, about 2030 as a target date for enlargement, which, you know, may may be good in terms of um giving uh, something to shoot for for candidate countries. But at the same time, if you look at Ukraine, especially, I think, you know, nobody could say with certainty that there will no longer be ongoing hostilities in Ukraine by 2030. I don't think we can say that. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how you're thinking about this issue and, you know, whether whether it needs to be thought about more seriously uh, by, by the EU and, and thinking about how maybe uh, the enlargement process itself could be adapted to adjust to this reality. 
Well, I really think you're asking the right questions, but these are not the questions that I see um, Europe or the European Union um, leaders asking themselves. Um, because it's just very difficult to imagine an enlargement process with a country um, that is going to be at war for a very long time. So in, in reality, diplomatic efforts are not going to deliver a, a fast result to this war. Um, and so we can only expect that um, uh, Vladimir Putin, as long as he is in power, uh, will pursue his agenda to completely erase Ukraine um, um, off the map, right? To completely challenge Ukraine's independence as a sovereign um, nation. So in that contest, um, in that context, I don't think Ukrainian membership uh, will be fast tracked. Um, the, it's not just the inherently lengthy nature of the accession negotiation process or the probable vetoes uh, from pro-Russian or Ukraine neutral governments in Europe um, that will uh, that, that will delay that uh, decision, but it's this uncertainty over how the Russia-Ukraine war will finalize. Um, and, and this is a, is a major issue also for Ukraine's um, uh, reforms uh, and reform agenda. Um, Ukraine's agenda for EU membership is a very trying task. Um, and, and while the European Union Commission is affording some latitude in evaluating um, Ukraine and Moldova's reform process, there are major reforms that are required um, that are still unlikely because of the ongoing war. So imagine that you have to reform your public administration and make it meritocratic, which is a demand by the European Union. How do you do that when where so many people are um, either involved in the war effort or have left the country um, or who just find it very difficult to work under the conditions um, of, of ongoing war uh, and, and stress in, in their own country. Or you, know, you have judicial vacancies that need to be um, uh, filled out or vetting of sitting judges. Um, and even this idea of having a credible track of investigations and, and prosecutions and final court decisions in high-level corruption case, cases, which is an important part of, of um, judiciary reform. Um, that is very hard to do when you are at war, uh, not to mention fighting organized crime, right? The, the, the control of illicit flow of firearms or human trafficking or cyber crime. These are all things that um, Ukraine has to deliver and it's just very hard to do uh, when uh, when you don't know uh, who you should be doing this with, right? So the capability um, that Ukraine has uh, to to deliver all these reforms is is quite limited, and this is connected very much to the fact that uh, there is so much delay in uh, in support of, of the war effort, and as long as that is not solved. Um, as long as there's no um, clear agenda to support Ukraine to win the war, not just to survive, um, it's very difficult to imagine how these um, reforms will, uh, will push Ukraine forward. Angelusha, I want to, you to add to that, but really like sitting here in Washington, D.C., the fact of the ongoing war is like the elephant in the room. And how, like, I mean, I guess my question, if I take a kind of stepping back and asking maybe a naive question, how is it that the European Union isn't tackling this head on? I mean, it's the most obvious problem given um, the EU's own mutual defense clause, the article 42.7. I mean, like how, how I, I guess I, I'm struggling to understand how this isn't 
something that is being tackled head on. And when there's an announcement about bringing Ukraine into the EU, that there isn't additional language that talks about the feasibility and the plan for how that can happen when there's a war ongoing. I mean, um, uh, I like to say that the at the beginning, the the European resolve was, um, you know, something to be proud of because you don't usually see that. So everyone was the the, the political rhetoric was in 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 the right place, and uh, efforts were there. And then slowly, slowly, this this kind of this resolve is is not where we want to see it. It's actually lagging behind all these promises, especially in the defense area. There, there, you know, it's not. Europe has not lived up to its promises. And, and I like to second Veronica, it's really, and it's, you, just to say enlargement then, it's really not the answer to all the problems that um, you know are right there in front of Ukrainians. Enlargement is partially the, the answer to the situation that we are seeing and to the situation that I hope is not gonna get worse. But if it continues, if European support continues with the same trend, I fear that it might, you know, deteriorate the situation. So, uh, you know, great. We started talking about enlargement. There are some decisions that have been taken by the Europeans, but but it's it's not enough. It's really uh, uh, not enough. Also, in terms of getting or expecting all these reforms to be conducted by Ukrainians uh, at war, when you know, considering how much administrative capacity a country needs. To align its um, its um, legislation and to come closer to to um, being in par with European legislation and all the chapters that need to be um, opened and closed and so on and so forth. Um, and then um, uh, the the you know the, and the the defense part, the lack of support coming from um, Europeans, but also U.S. at this moment in time. Um, then it it poses a serious question. Uh, you know, how are we going to go about resolving the probably the most grim or the, the most dangerous security situation that Europe has been faced since I don't know what Second World War? Um, and so I don't think there is enough uh, deep thinking um, taking place in Europe about its own security, and then of course on how to. Um, how to approach the the long term solution to Ukraine? Even I mean, let's say hypothetically speaking, even if Ukraine were to become part of European Union in 2030, I don't think this is enough of a security assurance for Ukraine, but also for Europe as well, because you know a country could be attacked again. It's, it doesn't have the protection of Article Five that NATO membership um, would bring about. So I think what we need to talk about is European enlargement, but also NATO enlargement at the same time, and hopefully NATO enlargement taking place first, like it's usually the case with uh, potential member EU member states. They become first uh, NATO members, and then uh, slowly, slowly, they also enter the union. So yeah, it's very complicated, and I don't think the answers are there, and I don't think there is political thinking in Europe on how on this how to go about it, how to approach the Ukraine issue. Yeah, it's exactly what I wanted to raise was this idea about the kind of parallel tracks of NATO and EU membership. I think what I worry a lot about is looking and taking the pulse here in Washington and kind of understanding the significant hesitation, reluctance, uh, you know, lack of appetite for bringing Ukraine into NATO 
then I worry that we're going to have a chicken and egg problem. And then the EU enlargement piece can't move forward if we're all hanging our hopes that the NATO piece is going to happen first. And so I wanted to ask both of you, it seems like then the alternative to the parallel tracks of NATO and EU enlargement is this discussion about um, gradual EU accession and being able to bring Ukraine into certain parts of the EU process and institutions without full membership. And that that would be a way to demonstrate the benefits of EU membership to Ukrainians and to more firmly anchor Ukraine in Euro-Atlantic institutions. Because although I agree that EU enlargement is certainly not the answer to Ukraine's problems, it is really important, right? Part of what a, a picture of victory looks like is a Ukraine that is firmly anchored in Euro-Atlantic institutions. So the EU piece is, is really important. So I wonder if you can talk about your sense of where that discussion is on the gradual accession and whether or not you think that's um, useful um, and, and a reasonable way forward or if there, and, and what the downside risks of that could be. Um, yes, I can maybe start. So I don't think there has been so much talk about um, gradual accession in the Canada, in the Granada meeting of the leaders in October and uh, also at the summit. I think the, the thinking is more along the lines of there has to be internal reform and uh, enlargement uh, to, to candidate countries at the same time. So um, kind of parallelly, um, there has to be um, both processes run in a, in a parallel way so that one doesn't bring the other process down. And I really do think that there has to be some kind of a reform for the enlargement process to, to um, advance. Like this, EU is not functional. There are so many problems. And to go back to Nick's uh, question, there are so many challenges internally. The, the moving to um, you know, more majority voting in the accession process in particular, um, but also rule of law, um, uh, you know, rule of law issues, you know, for for candidate countries when they eventually become EU members, like we have seen with uh, Hungary and Poland to an extent, um, then they, you know, the, the rule of law um, issues deteriorate in their own countries. And the mechanisms available, they're there. They're not being used by uh, by EU institutions, EU member states to prevent this. So there are so many um, internal challenges that EU has to be able to move forward, move forward with enlargement process. Um, but um, I think um, uh, this, um, you know, I think we could um, maybe hypothetically talk about a date. I know many people don't like to to talk about dates when it comes to EU enlargement. But since we mentioned uh, 2030, so there is a possibility, even if we don't talk specifically about a certain approach, like stage accession um, or other ideas that have been floating around. And lessons learned could be looked into uh, more carefully, like, for example, during the Big Bang accession if, of 2004, um, EU was very conscious of the fact that they need to reform first to make themselves ready for this other, uh, you know, the, the Big Bang enlargement, which meant 13 countries were joining the existing 15 members. So it was almost the double the number. And so there was this approach that there has to be, and they called it then Berlin Agenda 2000. So the Berlin Agenda was a detailed roadmap with some timelines 
uh, of what EU needs to do and what accession countries should be doing to come closer to, to integrating into the EU. And something like that will work in the case of Ukraine, especially. But I go back to what I said earlier on. It's not the whole answer to the complex situation that Ukraine has found itself in, in this, you know, uh, war of um, aggression um, by Russia that it's telling us quite openly, telling the whole world that they are basically interested in, in um, uh, not only destroying the country, but also destroying the very being of the nation. Uh, so I think, yes, it will help Ukraine uh, maybe stabilize economically to an extent, further integration into the EU, but there has to be a deeper thinking on how to um, move the security uh, guarantees uh, process at the same time as EU enlargement. Veronica, do you want to add? I think it's really a great question to think about this gradual EU accession. And I think about it, and uh, academics think about it, and people in think tanks think about it. It's not something that I can actually see trickle down into decision making because just so much should be done to do that, and change is bad. So as long as everybody sees the challenges of dealing with Ukraine in a different way, um, formally, uh, this will not happen. Um, it's something that can happen in terms of um, practicing integration. So there will be extra steps taken towards Ukraine. Um, there will be more uh, funding going to Ukraine if they manage to agree on this Ukraine facility. This is this is in some way um, uh, for, for practice gradual accession because Ukraine is getting extra support. Um, you have to uh, de-risk, uh, this word de-risking um, is, is it's just rising in all sorts of convers conversations um, because there are all these investment plans um, uh, that uh, member states and firms in member states have towards Ukraine, but they are just so risky, right? So it's only the European Union um, that can guarantee that uh, that their investments uh, uh, will see some kind of uh, fruit at some point. Um, so all these things can be done, and they are part of this metaphor, more or less, of gradual um, EU accession. And there will be other things that will show determination and, and that there will be um, more network building in academia as well with connecting uh, with universities um, in Ukraine, uh, with, with uh, human capital um, and in all sorts of other dimensions as well. Um, but the, the reform of the European Union is going to be a very um, you know, muddling through process. Uh, and that is characteristic of the of the European Union. Um, I just I want to also go back to this question that you had that is very important. How is it that the European Union is not thinking about the war in the in the decision making, right? And that's because this is not what European Union does. The attempts to have a joint foreign policy, a common security and defense policy have been really at the surface. There's never been a lot of movement forward in that direction, exactly because even if Article 42.7 is stronger in its wording than Article 5, 
because that's the optional ban what the European Union is giving. Um, it's never been taken seriously as much as, as NATO commitment have been taken. Um, and that's mostly because the United States is there. So even this um, uh, Rammstein group, the Ukraine Defense Coordination Group, um, it works because the United States is there. And the fact that the United States seems to not be there right now or in the future is a major issue for the European Union. Will it push the European Union forward to finally develop um, an independent um, uh, common security uh, defense policy? It's going to be very slow and, and it's not going to be helpful for Ukraine right now, because Ukraine right now, between now and summer, is likely to lose this war without aid, immediate support and aid uh, from its Western backers. Well, coming back very quickly to this question of internal EU reform that uh, you and Julia talked about a little bit earlier, you know, I, I think I think it's interesting. I was looking at the the conclusions from the European Council summit last week, and there is a, a statement in there that acknowledges the need for uh, internal reform in parallel with the enlargement process. However, very little specificity about what that actually looks like. And you know, I I, I don't know. I I'm I'm a little bit worried that while it is on the agenda, there's really no consensus at all among different EU member states about what reforms actually need to or should happen. Um, you know, a great example of this is this, the discussion about qualified majority voting, where you have a lot of uh, EU member states, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, that are very opposed to it. Um, and so I'm just, you know, I just wanted to flag that as that's, you know, maybe maybe the EU is is thinking about it and that it is on the agenda, but I don't think there's really anywhere close to decisions being made on that issue. But actually, another thing I wanted to ask about um, is, uh, and, and Julia, I know you recently had a, a really great piece that you released with some public opinion polling data on enlargement in the EU. And I'm wondering if you want to share any top line takeaways with listeners uh, from that. Yes, absolutely. So we were quite curious to see, uh, because um, obviously the, uh, the political rhetoric about granting accession talks uh, with to Ukraine um, it's there. Uh, political leaders share this apart from Hungary, and the decision was taken. But we were curious to see where does the public stand. And so what we did, we did a, a flash poll, uh, uh, which meant we asked uh, Europeans in uh, six EU countries. And so we did a bit of a combination northwest, southeast, and old members, new members. So we uh, asked people in Germany, France, Austria, Poland, um, Romania, and Denmark. And so, uh, in general, uh, uh, Europeans are more pro uh, seeing Ukraine get uh, into the EU, become the newest member, rather than other candidate countries and the Western Balkans. So the, the geopolitical um, uh, argument has sunk in to an extent, um, but not not with other like you know not with the other neighborhood, the Eastern neighborhood, yes, because there is a war going on. But with regards to Western Balkans, the, the polling, the opinions were quite low. Um, and then um, an interesting point was, um, you know, the border countries. Denmark was very much pro bringing Ukraine in as soon as possible. And so was uh, Poland. And Romania, as Veronica mentioned, was very pro bringing Moldova in as soon as possible. 
Um, uh, with regards to security issues, we asked the question whether you know um, Europeans understand the security threat, and it's it's um, quite strange that Europeans are you know quite worried to start to be uh, in conflict with the country, rather than understanding that enlarging to the east and to the south will actually insulate the continent. It will make it more secure. And th so this actually gives you uh, um, uh, the understanding that politicians have not started communicating with public about the importance of bringing Ukraine into uh, EU and into NATO. And so I think this has to start somewhere. And then you talk to policymakers about these issues, why there is no conversation going on. And then the issue of European elections that will take place in June comes up. And so I think I wanted to mention this with regards to the challenges. Apart from the lack of consensus on internal reform and how this should be developed, there is also this uh, hanging right there, the European, the upcoming European uh, parliamentary elections and the fact that there will be, uh, we will see a rise of populist parties and, and illiberal parties. So to go back to the polling, yes, there is still, you know, support for Ukraine, but I think in my opinion, it's not enough. Um, but uh, the the rationale, uh, the, the, the very important thing, why is it important to bring Ukraine into European Union and NATO has not been properly, you know, explained to to uh, to the publics to to the layperson um out there so so i think that there is a disconnect between the political uh, uh, rhetoric and to the public attitudes um, about enlargement we didn't ask specific questions about nato but i think i would be very curious to see how this is uh, uh, seen uh, in europe by the publics and Veronica, feel free to add, but I think in maybe in any words you have also on context, because previous rounds of EU enlargement weren't always publicly popular, right? Like thinking of Polish plunder. And oftentimes when you when the union enlarges, there's different fears about ramifications for different countries. And so I wonder kind of to what extent you see the public opinion part as an obstacle or something that is um, not easily surmountable, but but reasonable and can be surmounted. So I really think that looking at the way that the European Union has enlarged is very helpful to understand what it is likely to do right now, um, and particularly when it comes to uh, popular support. That's something where um, th these polls are very, very useful. So Angelisha referred to the fact that support still exists. Um, but that means that support has been dropping. And, um, and this is something that we have also seen in other polls at the European University Institute with YouGov and so on. And there's this prevailing point of discontent that centers on perceptions that countries are allocating an excessive amount of money or resources to Ukrainians. So to Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um, so many countries in reality have cut support for refugees. But many citizens still perceive them as receiving more benefits than they themselves do. Um, and, and that's an issue. So you can see support is dropping. Um, and uh, that is not just because there is no explanation of how uh, it's important to have Ukraine in the EU for European security. It's also because governments and politicians are using these sort of 
um, of information and in the using Ukrainians as scapegoats in many uh, in many situations to solve their own problems and domestic issues um, at home. So that th that is not something that we're seeing for the first time. Political elites are poised to magnify society's grievances um, and using them as convenient scapegoats for all sorts of failures in economic policies or as examples of burdens imposed uh, by the EU, so we always putting the blame on the EU and not on their own failures. Um, and this is fueling far-right and, and national conservative parties that we can see are um, at, at best Ukraine neutral, uh, if not anti-Ukrainian. Anti um, and this just reinforces the far-right and Eurosceptic movements um, that have been threatening to emerge in uh, Western Europe and in Eastern Europe for quite a while. Um, so in that sense, yes, this will impact enlargement because there will be less support um, for Ukraine going uh, forward after the uh, European Parliament elections. And um, it will also impact uh, support for enlargement at the, at the local level, um, at national level uh, in member states. Yeah, that's it's so helpful. Um, I think we're close to time, but maybe one last question. Um, you know, this issue of EU enlargement and Ukrainian membership in the EU is not something that people talk much about in Washington. I mean, I think it hasn't been a, ma a major issue the way, uh, you know, it's obviously a primarily European issue, but it's, I would say, you know, really critically important for the United States and in U.S. national security interests for Ukraine to be a member of the European Union. So if you were making a case um, to Americans, to policymakers in Washington, D.C. about why they should care about this issue, um, what would you say? Well, first of all, I would say that the United States actually supports the EU's enlargement process and, and it welcomed officially the European Council's December 14 decisions on EU enlargement, also by the uh, spokesperson in the Department of State. And I also know that US diplomats to EU capitals do uh, favor EU enlargement and they do bring it up in conversation all the time. And this is something that the United States has historically done. Right, so uh, so supporting um, uh, the EU in this effort, also because it doesn't want to just put everything on NATO. So you know, fair point. Um, this is something that European Union has to do um, in partnership with uh, with the um, uh, United States and NATO. So if I am to be asked why is this important, it's because Ukraine is. NATO's eastern flank. This isn't something that is happening somewhere far away. Um, the contact point between NATO and uh, Russia right now is at least in Finland. Russia is moving troops um, at the border with Finland and uh, the president uh, Vladimir Putin is emboldened by any show of collective weakness. This isn't something that will stop for him because, you know, they've conquered Abdika or, you know, Eastern Ukraine. This is not what's in the um, in Russia's strategy going forward, and it concerns all of us. Um, uh, this is also a regular pattern of Russian behavior. So my question then would be, what more does Russia need to do to show that the movement 
um, that they're banking on is to engage in a conflict with the West um, and not with uh, just Ukraine. So I think that supporting Ukraine um, is a is a matter of security uh, for uh, NATO more widely, and it is not a conflict that is somewhere far away. And what about the EU piece in particular? So why is it in the U.S. security interest to see Ukraine in the EU? Ukraine in the EU means that Ukrainians would have access to what the European Union can offer, and that is improved quality of life. Um, access to uh, a better healthcare, um, absence of corruption, um, uh, good infrastructure, everything that the um, European Union, more or less, because it's not spread um, and everywhere to the same degree, um, can offer uh, for, for its citizens. So the moment in which Ukrainian citizens would have access to a better life, they would be less um, exposed to Russia propaganda, their infrastructure in, in terms of, of traveling, but also cybersecurity, um, everything that uh, delivers a better life would improve as well. Um, and they would also have access to uh, the single market, which would mean that they own ability to uh, produce and be connected to the West uh, would improve. Um, so this is these things would need to happen um, in some kind of joint effort, this isn't something that either NATO or the EU can do on their own, but NATO and the EU would have to work together um, as they've always done uh, to support uh, to support its eastern flank. And Angelusha, what would you say? Yes, so uh, I think most of you uh, would know the name uh, Chris Patton, who used to be the commissioner for external relations before before um, Borrell took the office, as we know it, Joseph Borrell. And so at one point, uh, asked about Western Balkans, he said that European Union has the ability to export stability. Um, or we can, you know, sit and wait for, for instability to be exported into the EU. And, and he said something along the lines of, you can imagine which one I would prefer. So European Union, you know, becoming a member for a country, becoming a member of European Union is important um, for many reasons, but it's, it's very important because a country becomes economically, politically, and to an extent security-wise stable. And we have seen this with uh, ex-communist countries after the uh, uh, Big Bang that we mentioned. And so it's very important that uh, EU continues to enlarge, not only in the Eastern neighborhood, but, al but also in the Western Balkans, where US has a lot uh, you know, interest to see a stable region, uh, both in the Eastern Europe, but also in the Western Balkans, because they have invested a lot. And I think e uh, US can be very, very, you know, very helpful to this whole process. Um, because uh, through many bilateral relations, they, they have a lot of influence uh, in the Balkans, but also, I think, in Moldova and Ukraine to, to a large extent. Not so sure about Georgia. A stable uh, uh, and secure Europe, it's important for U.S. national security. No matter which way foreign policy in America goes after uh, elections next year, it could go we don't know where. But still, a secure and stable Europe, it's really important in whichever direction the, the, the foreign policy will go. Um, to have an instable region 
that could be a, a, a very strong ally uh, to US in whatever efforts will be out there to be pursued. I think it's really important for the national security in US. I mean, what what other strong argument would you need <laughs> rather than say you have a strong ally here and it needs to be supported to become even more stronger because there is this threat coming from Russia. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Veronica, last word is yours. I wanted to say that this is also a strategic win if Ukraine gets away with what it wants and Russia loses. It's important to show that we are supporting those nations who want the kind of life that is built on democracy and freedom and not support the efforts of those who want to export authoritarianism um, and the destruction of human rights. Yeah. And that's why I'm such a fan of the gradual accession idea. I mean, I just think that, you know, there's a long road ahead and to kind of hit the pause button and say we can't move forward, I think would be such a major miscalculation. And Angela, you made, uh, sorry, Veronica, you made the point um, before about, you know, Putin sensing weakness or lack of resolve and other things. And if we can't figure out a way to move forward, I think it just fuels those. Um, well, this was really wonderful. I feel like we could have talked for quite a bit longer. And I'm really hoping that we can come back to the two of you as this process progresses, just to kind of check in and see how things are going. But I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Much for the thank talk. you to both of you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.